the way that teaching transformed me and helped me to find my voice and get so comfortable speaking up and uh, having some authority, especially because, you know, at the time going through a divorce, I felt like such a failure and I felt like there, you know, my path didn't go the way I had planned. And I had fled domestic violence. I had been a teen mom. I kind of felt like I was different than other people or they were somehow better than me or they had like their shit figured out and I didn't or something. So there was something about stepping in front of the room as a leader and owning that authority that really was transformational for me. Welcome to the Business Muscle Podcast, where we empower entrepreneurs to transform their businesses into unstoppable empires. I'm Elise, CPA turned serial entrepreneur. And I'm Arielle, a seasoned physical therapist and business owner. We're two female entrepreneurs with a passion for helping small business owners like you achieve massive success. With our combined expertise, we've scaled to an impressive seven businesses in less than seven years. And guess what? Each of them was profitable right from the start. But we didn't stop there. We're here to share our secrets, strategies, and insider tips to help you turn your business into a thriving reality. And hey, we're not just all about business. As a physical therapist and fitness instructor, we'll also sprinkle in some fitness and wellness tips along the way. Join us on the Business Muscle Podcast every Monday as we guide you step-by-step towards financial freedom and building the business of your dreams. It's time to level up your business. Get ready to flex your business muscle. Welcome back to another episode of the Business Muscle Podcast. Today, we are sitting down with Andrea Lucas, the founder of Bar and Soul. Andrea became a single mom as a teen and rebuilt her life after surviving domestic violence to build her multi-million dollar business, which has grown to four locations. Andrea is a speaker, a feminist, and the author of her own book, Own It All. She is a thought leader in this branch of fitness who has been featured in places like Forbes, The Huffington Post, Boston Magazine, and more. Andrea is crazy devoted to helping women stand up for themselves and take radical personal responsibility for their own happiness. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So before we get started, why don't you tell everyone what Bar and Soul is? Bar and Soul is a uh, boutique bar and yoga fitness brand. We have four locations in New England. We're in Melrose, Mass, and Harvard Square, and then Providence, Rhode Island, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We also have an online uh, teacher training academy for bar and yoga teacher training called Bar and Soul Academy. Awesome. So where did you even get started when you wanted to open your own studio? Like, Take us back to way back when before you launched Bar and Soul. Well, honestly, I got into teaching bar, I don't want to say by accident, but kind of, because I was going through a miserable divorce. I was finishing up my bachelor's. I had two small kids. Um, I was about 30. And I started teaching, I I discovered bar and started doing it during my divorce. And it really helped get me through that time. And it would just be like that one hour that I wasn't obsessively thinking about what I was going to do or checking my phone to see if my lawyer got back to me yet or whatever. So it really helped heal me. And during that time, I finished up my bachelor's and I had switched to women's studies because I got really passionate about feminist issues. And then I just was teaching bar as kind of a a side thing, like just a part-time job until I figured out what I was really going to do. I kind of wanted to be a women's studies professor. I want to go get a whole PhD. And I just was in the middle of taking class one day and I kind of had this epiphany where I was like, wait, if I want to be able to have a voice for women's empowerment, 
spread a feminist message, create a culture that is more empowering to women. Funny enough, a boutique fitness studio is a great platform for that. It doesn't have to happen in a college classroom where you're only speaking to one you know, tiny section of the population. You can be in a community and creating a ripple effect for the women in that community that is rippling out side of the studio and out into their lives. Absolutely. That's something that I experienced with Sweatbex. Like the moment that I walked into a fitness studio, just feeling super empowered and feeling like I just had so much control over what I was doing. And it just felt really empowering to me and becoming an instructor did that for me as well. It's so interesting how that setting can do that for you. Um, so how did you make the leap and make the transition from becoming an instructor, getting more involved with it, to then wanting to take the leap to open your own studio? Mm. It's funny because I can remember in training to be an instructor, my trainer, I was having such a hard time practicing, just getting my words out. And she was like, when you're in your car alone, just practice counting to the beat of the music, just talk out loud. And I would open up my mouth to speak alone in my car. And a voice in my head was like, just shut up, just shut up, just shut up. Like the way that teaching transformed me and helped me to find my voice and get so comfortable speaking up and uh, having some authority, especially because, you know, at the time going through a divorce, I felt like such a failure. And I felt like there were you know, my path didn't go the way I had planned. And I had fled domestic violence. I had been a teen mom. I kind of felt like I was different than other people or they were somehow better than me or they had like their shit figured out and I didn't or something. So there was something about stepping in front of the room as a leader and owning that authority that really was transformational for me. And after a while of teaching, I was teaching at Exhale in Boston and they opened a second location at Battery Wharf, and I took a management position there. And I did that for about, I don't know, a year and a half. It was my dream job. And then I couldn't figure out why it started to not be anymore because they were great there. Like it was a wonderful place to work at, excellent mentors. But I had a client who was a career and basically just for shorthand, she was a career coach, let's say. I think she calls herself an executive coach. But um, she gave me this assessment and she was like, oh my God, no wonder you're getting restless. You profile as an entrepreneur. Like you're always going to want to start things and then hand them off to someone else to keep it going and go start something else. And if you know that about yourself, you can plan for that and build your career around it and it can be an asset. And that gave me so much freedom because I knew this quality of myself, but it was something I was kind of ashamed of and that I thought made me like a flake or something. You know, it was like, oh, if I was more disciplined, I would want to stick with things longer and like, what's the matter with me? And that, to be honest, the idea of being an entrepreneur when she said that did not sound within reach to me because I thought, who are these people that have thousands of dollars like in reserve that they can sign a commercial lease and if, you know, and, and feel like they'll be able to float it if they have a bad month or just cover it if the business fails or whatever. I thought they must be people that have trust funds. Like I, I just didn't understand how it worked and I didn't have any examples of it in my immediate network, which, you know, I'm really, I didn't realize then, but I realize now. So, um, what I ended up doing is I developed my own bar method called Bar and Soul, and I really wanted to take the bar classes that I loved, but the ability to kind of get on your soapbox like I could do when I taught yoga, I wanted to blend that. So I just found partners and places to teach that. I did it at Equinox, uh, 
uh, Sports Club LA. I did it at Lexington Power Yoga. And when I started there, we had a beautiful partnership where they basically made me the exclusive bar program for their yoga studio. So all the teachers would be trained and hired through me. They would, they would technically, they were, I was a contractor and they were subcontractors and, uh, and it was my program basically, but I got to do it with really no overhead and using someone else's space. So I thought this was a great model. Bar was going really, let's say viral at that time. It was like 2013 and Everybody knew they wanted bar, but the way the bar industry was, every brand has always been very secretive and like close to the vest with their training. So you couldn't really get trained unless you had taught at one of these Lottie Burke inspired bar studios. So there were a bunch of people just making up bar trainings that were like horrible and you could get the certification in two hours or something. But I had all this training. I was this extremely highly trained bar teacher at this point from being a teacher trainer at Exhale and having the mentors there that I had. So I was able to bring really high quality, excellent bar programming to studios. And I thought for someone like me who didn't have the capital to have my own space, I just thought I would rack up a bunch of these partnerships and that's how I would scale. And literally the second studio that I approached to do the partnership with, she confided in me that she was moving and she was looking for someone to just buy her studio and take it over. And um, she had really strong financials for the business. So it was still completely terrifying, but it wasn't starting from zero. So I was able to see that like, okay, I'll definitely be able to cover the rent every month and I will definitely be able to pay myself. So that, but I want to say that when I took the job at Exhale to be a manager there, I had the opportunity to buy the studio I had trained at up in Newburyport, and I didn't. Even though I knew I I wanted my own studio, like in my heart, I knew I wanted that. I didn't feel ready, and her financials weren't strong, so I wasn't sure I'd be able to pay myself. And that I was not independently wealthy; I couldn't take that leap. So, I think there's something to be said for the leaps that you don't take because it's too big at this time. And I have this saying: you take the biggest risk you can stomach for today. Because if you get too focused on the risk that's too big or the leap you're not ready to take yet, you can just stay completely inert and not take any action. So I think it's important to just keep taking that next step and that next step, even if they're just baby steps. So that way, at least you are progressing toward that bigger vision. I think that's such great advice because a lot of people will come to us and they'll say, where do I start? Like, And it looks like this huge mountain they have to climb. And instead of taking it like piece by piece or day by day, they're like, I can't do this because it just looks too big. So I think what you did about partnering and just networking and reaching out and kind of finding your way and learning along the way was brilliant. You developed your method. You didn't open a studio and then said, I'm going to figure out what we're doing. You were an expert by the time you got the chance. You were ready. When that opportunity came to pull the trigger, you were like, no, I'm ready for this. So I thought that was brilliant. And what great, what a great present that person gave to you by giving you that, like, you're an entrepreneur. Cause like, sometimes you just need somebody to like say it to you or somebody to look up to. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm, we're so happy you're here. Cause you're somebody that we both look up to. You've kind of paved the way for females in this area. And I think that it's so important, especially for females to see that it can be done and you don't need to have rich parents or the business degree. Cause you didn't go to school for business. No, nope. I ended up 
I went for English for a while and then I switched to women's studies because mm-hmm. I realized that all these literature classes that I was doing, all I wanted to talk about were like the gender politics mm-hmm. <laughs> that were going on. And I'm like, I think actually this is the issue I really want to focus in on. So, yeah. And then let's get into like what differentiates Bar and Soul. Cause there is, like you mentioned, there's a lot of bar studios out there and there's a lot of not great bar trainings out there. So what makes Bar and Soul different? Mm. Well, we are based in the original American Lottie Burke style of bar. And if you're not a bar nerd, this is going to be so boring. So I'll try to keep it really brief. But basically, bar was created by this wild bohemian dancer who had fled Nazi Germany. And she started, and her name was Lottie Burke. And she started a studio, a little basement studio in London that had such a cult following and celebrities would go there and she would just whip them into shape. She'd have her little riding crop that she would threaten you with. And she'd have like a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And she talked about sex a lot. Like she was just really wild and free. And especially for that time. So her method, somebody from the US named Lydia Bach went to London, trained with Lottie, brought it back here and named her studio Lottie Burke, um, the Lottie Burke method. And this was in New York City. It had a cult following for decades. And then it kind of uh, just broke apart around, I'll say 2002-ish, I don't know, early part of the 2000s. And then you saw a lot of other places crop up like the Daily Method, Bar Method, Pure Bar started in Michigan, I think sometime around then, um, and Exhale. Fred and Liz, who had been the managers of Lottie Burke Method for 25 years, went and co-founded Exhale. So they were my mentors. And the degree of excellence to which they trained us there was just so remarkable and so precise and so thorough. And so I had that high bar in my mind for just that was like the baseline standard. It wasn't like, oh, if you're lucky, your class will be this good. It's like you don't even get on the schedule unless your class is this impeccable. So I came in with that. But what also makes us different is that, like I said, I have my women's studies background. And from being a yoga teacher, I realized how important it was for me to have moments in class where you're sharing more than just physical movement cues, but you're sharing something deeper that, like I said, will ripple out and will the students will take with them off of their mat. One more boring note about the um, Lottie Burke training. In 2017, I found out that Lottie Burke's daughter, Esther Fairfax, who was 84 at the time, I think, was still teaching out of her living room at this uh, at her little home in uh, England. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to take my training from like 99 to 100. And I flew to England to mentor and and study with her and get certified in her pure Lottie technique, which is what she was calling it at the time. And it is wild because what I learned was, um, well, first of all, I got a mentor for life. She's 89 now. And I've seen her actually twice this last year, which was amazing. This is the first time since the pandemic. But the original Lottie Burke method was quite different than what we were doing here in the US. Like it had evolved a lot more than I knew. So mm-hmm. I thought I was teaching real bar and everyone else was teaching fake bar. And then I went there and I was so humbled because I was like, oh my God, this is kind of weird compared to what I'm used to. And there was no counting and you weren't allowed to talk about breathing at all. And um, it was, you know, a lot of the movements look different. And just the way the class was structured was organized so differently. It wasn't like, 
thighs, glutes, arms, core. It was like, these are the exercises you do facing the bar. And then you do some on the floor. And then you do some turned sideways on the bar. And, the, you know, just like totally challenged my brain about the way the class was organized. So I am trained in the real original Lottie work. And what we did was, um, I, I don't, I consider myself more of a creative than like a historian. So I want to say that I did learn the rules before I broke them, but we did break a lot of the rules of the original just because, you know, if you think about a method that was created in 1959, women didn't want to have biceps mm-hmm. in 1959. You know what I mean? So it's just a lot that has changed. They, there were no props. There were no weights or anything like that in the original class. And I, of course, do think there is a place for that now in a workout that women are going to make their primary source of movement. So um, we've taken liberties with the original, but it is informed by the original. And we do have some exercises that I had never seen in the United States. And I had been teaching bar for 10 years by the time I trained with Esther. And she definitely blew my mind. <laughs> I came away with a lot of, I, I was challenged and I had a lot of new material. That's so awesome that you just flew out there and continued to get educated and continued to learn even though you probably thought like, I already know everything. Like a lot of people are like, I know this, I don't need to, but you were so hungry and you just kept learning. And I think that's huge. So you went, you got this partnership, well, you bought that studio. And so you already had all the experience, which a lot of entrepreneurs don't have at the beginning, but you had that background, you had your method, but you didn't have the business experience. So what was it like going from partnering to actually being the one that's running the show? Mm. I got so lucky because I had another really powerful conversation that probably to to her was like just a throwaway comment, but that gave me so much freedom. I was in this little clothing boutique in Melrose where I live. And this woman was asking me about myself, the owner. And I told her a little about my business. And she said, oh, so you have a studio? And I was like, oh no, I don't have a studio. Like I don't, I just don't know how to do all that. Like, I don't know how you do payroll or taxes, or I don't know if there's permits that you need to have. And she was like, oh my God, no one knows how to do any of that stuff. She was like, that's what your lawyer and your accountant are for. Like, don't worry about it. And and then she said, I'm going to send you just a basic template, just a basic spreadsheet, profit and loss, where just plug in and see, you know, plug in rent, plug in overhead expenses, payroll, et cetera, and just see how much you'd have to sell to make more than what you're making right now with your current business model. And that was just so generous of her and just this chance encounter. But it gave me so much freedom because, again, I started to realize that entrepreneurs weren't these like other people, these different kind of people that I didn't belong with. Like, I don't know. I just think about the number of small businesses out there and even the number of families that come here from another country and they're in you know, a new place that's not even their homeland and they're able to figure out how to jump through all these hoops that you have to do to have a business. And I just thought, you know what? People do this every day. If if other people can do this, I can do it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of things in the beginning that you just figure out as you go. And I think it's just having someone to give you a little bit of guidance and some of the things that you don't understand. And like you said, like that chance encounter of another, what a great gift that she gave you. Like, so such a blessing that you encountered this person at the right time. Um, and that's something that I had to deal with too, because I'm a physical therapist. I didn't have any business background. And then I met Elise and we actually mapped out, okay, this is the actual number of clients we would need to see at fix. And all of a sudden it became so much more realistic and so much more attainable, Mm -hmm. which just made it seem like, Oh, maybe I can actually do this. So when you did open, you're in that studio, how did the first few months go? Like how long did it take until you felt like you had your footing? Well, 
the great news is I was so naive then that um, I, okay. So what ended up happening was while I was negotiating with the owner of the studio, the landlord told us that he would not lease the space to me. So I would have to move the studio. And fortunately, I was naive enough to think that shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because I said yes to it. Now, certainly I used that to my advantage in the negotiation and I lessened the amount by a lot of what I was willing to pay for the business. But we actually got an eviction notice and we had 60 days to get out of that space. So she was moving, like her moving truck was coming in five days. And it was on me to figure out where we were going to move to. And I had no idea how scarce commercial spaces in Melrose. I didn't know anything about how much square footage you really needed. And I looked at a few spaces and nothing was really suitable. And then one day I was walking in to have dinner with my family and I noticed the spot across the street had paper over the windows. So I was like, oh, oh, and it was like, you know, a handwritten thing saying, call Lenny, who I know. He's our landlord. He's our landlord. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I called Lenny and I looked at that space and I was like, nope, this is way too small. This will not fly. And fortunately, I am very lucky that my partner is an architect. So he was able to put the space into AutoCAD and like show me actually plot out the mats. And he was like, this could work. And I'm like, no, this is crazy. Like people are going to be walking in the door, stepping on someone's yoga mat. There's no room to have an entry area at all. You're just going to have to like kick off your shoes and, you know, scurry over to your mat and whatever. And, but after a few more weeks of looking, I realized there was no other better option. So I think it was only like a one year lease. And, uh, I was like, okay, well, we just need to go somewhere for now. We'll do this for a year. And then I'm sure I'll find something bigger and better. And we ended up keeping that location until I finally just let it go in March of 2022, I believe. Um, it was, so busy. We had it waitlisted. I mean, I built a really successful business there. And fortunately, it literally to the last day, I was like, this is literally too small. It does not work. But for some reason it did. (laughs) Um, And when there was a dance studio moving out across town and vacating their space, we took that on kind of as like an annex space. So we had two across town. And then I just realized after the pandemic, classes were small and like the energy was weird. And I was like, why do we have four people over on Main Street and four people over on Franklin Street? And neither one has very good energy. I'd rather just consolidate. Not only that, for for new clients, it was a little bit confusing for them. Sometimes they would show up to the wrong location. So I'm really happy that we we moved. And, and it's funny because that was one of the first... Uh, I know we were talking earlier today about how the emotions that come along with when to say no to something and when to close something. I just realized like, why am I paying for two spaces? I don't need this anymore. And I thought it was a little bit emotional and hard to make that decision, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And it's so funny because I walk by there all the time and I just feel nothing. (laughs) I feel totally great about it. And I'm like, not my problem anymore. It's just like one less thing that I have, you know, on my list of things I'm responsible for. So, and I'm like happy for the person that's in there now. And I, I just don't miss it. So that's how you know it was the right decision. Yep, Definitely. And I, I actually took my teacher, my yoga teacher training in that space, which when I first walked in, I was like, oh, this is kind of small, but it just was perfect. I feel like you just filled the space with energy. And now 
because at the time when I took this, I wasn't a business owner. But now I'm like, that was brilliant. I think a lot of people take on way too much square footage that they don't need and they spend all this money on equipment and build outs and they are never going to make their money back. When we open our businesses, we're trying to get cash flow in the first month. Yes. So I don't need, if you go into a sweat fix, it's not fancy. We did all the painting. We like we do all the things and our our footprint isn't big. Just like in Bar and Soul at the beginning, it wasn't big, but that's why you were successful at the beginning. You just need to make your money back and then you can build. Exactly. So I think you did it the right way. Thank you. Yeah, I think outgrowing your space isn't a great problem mm-hmm. to have. Yeah. 100%. You don't want to have all this rent and overhead and then be like, oh, crap, because then the pressure's on and then you can't actually deliver and run the business, I think, the way you want to because then you're just focused on how do I just cover the rent instead exactly. of like why you got into it in the beginning. Then you can't hire the way that you need to. Mm-hmm. And that was another thing that the woman, her name is Alex, who originally told me I did not need to know what I was doing in the beginning. But I remember her saying to me, everybody thinks rent is your biggest expense, but it's going to be payroll. So that's the important thing. That's why she sent me that pro forma spreadsheet and let me plug it in to see this is what it would cost to teach other people um, to do the classes. This, This is how I can back off the payroll if I want to teach more classes myself. Like It was just an important exercise to go through all of that. Mm-hmm. How were you guys marketing at the beginning? If you think, because it's probably a lot different than you guys are doing it now. We really partnered a lot with Lululemon in the beginning. I had been an ambassador for them. I I still love love them as a brand and as a company. Like if I ever have an opportunity to hire someone from a Lululemon background, I always do because they have such an amazing culture and just great people processes and. Um, that's really helped my business a lot because I don't have a ton of corporate experience myself. So I find it really helpful to hire people that have come from awesome companies. But yeah, so I had been an ambassador. I did a lot of Lululemon partnerships. Um, I don't think I ran Facebook ads for the studios. I ran Facebook ads for teachers at the time and I just did it myself. I mean, it was 2013. It was totally different then, but you could just like spend 10 or $20 a day and actually have really good results. Yeah, that's gone now. (laughs) (laughs) We still use Facebook ads, but I have someone on my team that's an expert in that now, but not for the studios, actually just for teacher training. Although we, we probably will start to use it more for the studios this year, but I'm just trying to think back to the marketing. I think it was like that very grassroots Lululemon style marketing where you have a big grand opening party, you invite everybody. I remember like Facebook invitations being big at that time, Facebook events, and you would invite people like that. I don't remember doing paid advertising in general. I don't do paid advertising for the studios. I also tend to think that for a brick and mortar business in a community, the most important social platform that you have is really your Google business listing because it's going to be inbound traffic of people searching for workouts in their area or studios in their area. And you just want to make sure that they can find you. It's up to date. The photos are inviting. The reviews are awesome and it's easy to book a class that way. Yeah, absolutely. Those are warm leads, people who are Googling what you do. We've been putting a big emphasis on our Google reviews this year too, and that's made a huge difference for us. Yeah. So you have this business, it pretty much takes off. You hit it out of the park. When did you start to think about opening the next location? When did that thought start to trickle in? Right. So I think in order to we did find that space, we did manage to build it out. I think I I think I lagged one day behind our eviction date from the other space. I think I only had to close for one day before we opened in the new space, which tons of people were totally pissed about 
that it was smaller. They were pissed about me buying the studio. I wasn't prepared for that, that when you take over a studio, there are sometimes people with like pitchforks and torches that are going to kind of come after you because they're mad that you're changing things. People were mad I added bar. Like, you know, I just want to say it wasn't all sunshine. And I do remember one of my first times uh, teaching a bar class at the the yoga studio at the time uh, as I was introducing bar and soul. I just remember this one class having one woman show up and I can still picture her face. And I remember her being like, oh my gosh, you don't have to do class just for me. Like I can go and me being like, no, you are here for your workout and I'm here for your workout and we're doing this class, you know? But it's just, I know that when people are just starting out, there is this sense of, oh, if I, if my business doesn't look like Elisa's business, then what am I even doing? And it's like, okay, well that took many, many years to build, but I'm sure you had classes you showed up to where you're like, where the hell is everybody? <laughs> Always. Like you just have to grind and get it done. And you were probably like, no, come in. Cause that one person, if they have a great experience, they're going to go tell five friends yeah. and then tell five friends. So every single person at the beginning, we always say one client at a time at the beginning, mm-hmm. one client at a time. Love that. So yeah, that location, I think I had to borrow $10,000 from a family member's retirement to get up and open. And I mean, I was able to pay her back like within six weeks, um, no problem. It was immediately profitable. I had made a really good choice not buying that other previous studio, getting the experience from Exhale and then doing what I did here with a, a studio that had a track record. So next, what happened was within a year of that, I realized that um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where I'm, I'm from that general area, I grew up in Agunquit, Maine, and I was up there, I'm up there a lot in the summertime, and I was up there and I'm like, man, there is really no bar studio in Portsmouth, and there will be, inevitably. So uh, it was just in that moment that bar was kind of exploding, and it takes a long time to open a franchise, but someone like me can open a studio, as we saw, in 60 days. So, <laughs> so um I just, I was scared to do something up there because I don't live up there and I knew I would have to hire a team and have it run itself. But I was also feeling pretty um, bold and encouraged by the success I'd had so far at Lexington Power Yoga and then with the studio I just bought in Melrose. So uh, yeah, I found a space. I was surprised how affordable the rent was and I ran Facebook ads and I hired and trained a team and I still have that location. We actually just moved it during the pandemic, expanded it to a bigger, beautiful space, even better parking. And um, so that was my second one. And even that one, I think I was profitable within like six weeks, but also I mean, I started out with like an air quotes manager. I think she made like $500 a month. And I told her it was like, just make sure there's always paper towels and, you know, um, handle the the sub requests and whatever. And within a couple months, she was like, um, this job is bigger and we need to <laughs> revisit this. I'm like, okay, okay. And she was with us for several years. She was an awesome studio manager. It totally grew into a full-time role. And, and I do think that's so important to just not overspend on your overhead in the beginning. You've got to just start where you are and build it kind of brick by brick and, and step by step. Yeah. So when you were in the process of opening the second location for your first location, were you still teaching a lot of the classes there? I was still teaching a handful of them, I think, but I did do a teacher training. I'm like trying to think backwards. So I think I opened in in Melrose in October and I want to say in January, I ran a teacher training and by April, I had like a strong, small but strong team of teachers who were teaching most 
of the classes on the schedule there. And I just also want to rewind for a second to tell a story of when I was at Lexington Power Yoga and I did my first first teacher training because I was the only bar and soul teacher at that time back in 2013. I had like six or seven people sign up and I didn't take deposits from anyone. And everyone but two people quit on me like the within like 48 hours of starting. So when I showed up to teach that first training, it was to two people. One of them kind of like went off and opened her own studio in a very short amount of time. The other one ended up being the most valuable employee for the first year or two of my business that really helped me get it off the ground. So I just want to share those stories that like it wasn't all cute and successful. It was like kind of humiliating at times or discouraging or just disappointing. There was so many times I doubted myself, but I kind of had already committed at that point. So I just had to keep on going. So you were running all of the all the teacher trainings yourself. I was. And then at that point, so then you were running them for the second team. Mm -hmm. At that point, were you bringing on someone else who could instruct to teach new team members as well? Like how did you build your team from just your one location to two? Yeah. When I got into the second location, I did bring in a veteran teacher and a friend of mine who lived up in the Portsmouth area who I knew could help oversee and, and train and develop folks um, that was really, really helpful to do. Yeah. I'm sure at this point too, where you have, you, you know, your mental capacity is just going in different directions. I'm sure it helped you like loosen the reins a little bit. I've heard that from other business owners too. Like as soon as they grew to a second one and helped them step back and see almost like bird's eye view of their first location and of the business as a whole. Did you experience that? Yeah. And it was definitely really empowering to go into a community where I didn't live and I wasn't on the schedule and to be successful there was so empowering. And I'm thinking about the marketing that we did for that opening. There are we, we sent a lot of press releases at the time. We would use a lot of local community boards like, um, like, I guess like Patch or something like that. There were like different websites where you could post local events and just try to create buzz and have like a grand opening party, partner with local businesses. So we were upstairs from a, from a salon. We actually did like a joint grand opening party, which was really cool. We had musicians, we had local companies catering it and promoting it on their social media. So a lot of local business partnerships um, in order to get launched. Yeah. I always say if you don't have a lot of money for advertising, and this is what we did at Sweatfix, we didn't put any money at the beginning, but you just collaborate. You reach out to other people in the community that are doing similar things or just want to kind of help raise up other small businesses and work with them mm -hmm. because it's going to be similar clientele and a rising tide lifts all ships. So you've got to find the people and you'll be able to tell some people they're not about that life and you're like, okay, that's fine. But there's a lot of people that do and they want to help and like having a co-grand opening, that's brilliant because then you get double the amount of eyes on both your businesses. Why not? Right. Um, so I think that's so smart. What were some of the keys to scaling? Because scaling is really tough and scaling well without being everywhere or kind of eating your own business is tough to do. So what do you feel like some, were some of your keys to success there? Um, I'm like, I don't know. Have you figured out the keys to scaling? Because <laughs> so, like, will you tell me? <laughs> I would say for us and we, this, well, cause I look back and I'm like, where did we fail? And then where have we gotten better at it? And for us, it was finding the right people. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, I, I feel like we just hurried and we hired the wrong people. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that, it, it's just not going to work because you're not going to be there every day. I used to be there every day. And when I scaled with the wrong people, it just didn't hit the same. Mm. And so I realized that when we started to scale well, we found the right people and we put the right 
systems in place where it kind of like safeguarded people. And we just, it made things more of a system instead of like, everything's in my head. Everything's in Andrea's head. She knows how you want to talk to people. And you just, I expected people to know how do we do it. And until I kind of built that out, we didn't scale as well as we do now. Mm, I could totally see that. Yes. One thing that's great is we've always had a very, very solid system. Ever since I did that first training that only two people showed up to, um, I've had a very methodical teacher training program. So that was huge because Mm -hmm. there's never been quality control issues with making sure that everyone's teaching the same way and the same method. And I was always pretty strict about it. Like we do you know, I would say we call them rave reviews now, but you know, we do quality control check-ins once a quarter and just make sure we're giving teachers feedback so that they can feel like they're still growing and giving them something new to work on. So that's really huge. Just the consistency of having your method really dialed. And then, um, I agree. Yes. Like having that front desk manual, having systems for how you handle literally everything, having your pricing make a lot of sense and like very well thought out and also simple, I think is really huge. But I would say with scaling, I agree with you. It's it's having great leaders in place who really are invested and care about the studio and and that and giving them enough space to have a sense of ownership that they take so much pride in that location that it's not like you're you're just letting them come and do something in your space. It's like when I visit some of my studios, I feel like I'm visiting their studio in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, yes, they are following the processes and the procedures and all the brand guidelines and things like that that we do. But I really do try. I'm not, I'm not always amazing at it, but I really do try to make sure that everyone feels like a sense of autonomy and creativity and pride in their work. So you know, I think micromanaging has been a little bit of a challenge for me sometimes. And it's not because I don't think people are capable of doing their jobs. It's literally because I have trust issues. It's like just PTSD and trauma. And I just have to check it when, when I see it happening and I hope that I'll get the feedback when I need to hear it. Because I really do think that if you are too up in everyone's business, there's just not enough challenge and and it's not interesting enough for a players they need to have space to do their thing and to shine that kind of leads me into what my next question was going to be you have four locations so you're managing a lot of people what is your management style like and how has it really evolved because it's probably not the same as when you first started and you were kind of just running it yourself now you have a lot of people you're responsible for and you know i think there were a few different seasons of this in my business because in the beginning i leveraged a lot of personal relationships the people i hired were within my network because they were my most loyal students they were friends that i had taught at this or that studio with and they were so loyal to me and they it allowed me to really start the business with a lot of a players on the team because i had been spending years already teaching and in the industry and building these awesome and beautiful relationships. I would say after we got to four or five locations, I was more removed from the process. And sometimes the the same level of loyalty wasn't really there. Like the same level of investment and engagement wasn't always there from the team. So there was a time when that was a little bit more of a challenge. And now I feel like we're back in another era where it's amazing again. And one thing that was missing for a while was having a really stellar people manager on the team, which is not me. 
because I am just not a manager. I'm into leadership. I'm really not into management. It feels like physically painful for me to have to be in the day-to-day maintenance of something and not be in the creation of what's next. So I just don't have it's just not a strength. I don't have a lot of patience for what it takes to just keep showing up every day and having the conversations. Like I kind of feel like I put my time in in the beginning with all the classes that I taught and all the, you know, things I had to do to get off the ground, but if I had to keep recruiting, hiring, training new talent now, I would totally totally burn out because I, it would just feel like I was trapped on a hamster wheel. So that has been something that's been very important for me to hand off. And in the past um I've tried to hand it off without the right leadership in place that could really handle it, and it didn't go as well. And there were a lot more people issues and a lot more turnover. So I think we're in a really great place now that I have someone, like I said, Lululemon background. Uh, my regional director right now, Janice, she's amazing. She's she's worked for big companies like Core Power, Free People, Converse, Lululemon, and done regional director roles and had to run large teams and twice the size of the team that we have. So it's nice because sometimes I do get overwhelmed. Like, oh my God, how do I have all these employees? And like, what, how am I even paying all these people? And what if they all quit? And then what would I do? And this business is way bigger than I could ever run myself at this point. And again, it challenges me from a place of actually having to trust and rely on other people. And But now that Janice is here, I never think about being overwhelmed or dealing with management or feeling like I'm stuck in a a stressful cycle anymore. Like, yeah, it's still stressful when someone that you love leaves, you know, or a really key player decides to move on. I mean, of course that's hard and that's challenging, but I feel like I have someone in my corner now who's just so adaptable and, and cool about it and unfazed and, you know, just kind of takes it all in stride. I know you mentioned that your manager came from corporate background and Lululemon background. What are some of the other qualities that you look for in your team members and now that your manager looks for when she's doing hiring? Mm. Um, we've really started using StrengthsFinder more lately to understand people's personalities. And like, for example, based on my strengths, yeah, I'm happy to lead people like from a stage, but for me to be in day-to-day meetings with people would be like, I would want to stab myself in the eye. Like, (laughs) so, you know, and again, it's just like entrepreneurship. I could make myself wrong and say that that makes me like, that I have a big ego or it makes me whatever, or I could just accept that that's actually my personality and work with it and just try to add value from that place instead of trying to force myself to be someone that I'm not or to have, you know, something like consistency is very low on my strengths finder. It's like in my bottom five. So expecting myself to consistently show up on social media every single day without support would absolutely not happen because it just isn't a strength for me. So we do try to use the strengths finder and I find for, I find, so there's kind of four quadrants to it. I don't know. Do you know strengths finder? I'm not super familiar with it now. Okay. So I'm not going to get this right off the top of my head, but there's influencing skills. There's like people skills, like interpersonal skills. Um, there's organizing kind of like being like an accountant. And then there's one more I'm not thinking of right now. And but basically like you can be kind of like a relationships person. You can be like a from the stage person. You can be like a bookkeeper type of person. 
And of course, you're, everyone is a mix of all of these things. And then whatever the fourth one is that I'm blanking on. But we do find that, you know, people that have a lot of influencing skills. Oh, um, never mind. I don't know. But anyway, people that have a lot of influencing skills make great teachers. They make great studio managers because they're charismatic and people want to follow them. That's so interesting. I feel like we talk about this indirectly where we make a good partnership because we come with opposite strengths. Mm. Like I am someone who likes more one-on-one conversations versus Elise's more of that probably stage presence <laughs> type person. Um, and we just come from different backgrounds. So that just makes us a really strong team. So it's almost like filling in the gaps mm-hmm. on your team. Absolutely. And I do think that is a big opportunity for us right now. Like our team does have very high influencing and kind of goal-driven, go-getter kind of energy. But we don't have a lot of that organization, methodical, filling out paperwork, making sure the forms got handed in on time, pulling the reports, double-checking the numbers. Like we would benefit from more of that. And we are actually seeking that out and trying to kind of backfill that into the team now to make sure that all of our rock star people are really supported with you know, it's like having um, your um, person in the in the control center who is who is you know helping you guide you along the way and support you. Yeah, it's really it's refreshing to hear you say that too because you need a you need a spreadsheets person just like I did too. I needed someone who was going to have that organizational component and look at the numbers and be really comfortable with that. And if you are looking to start your own business, you can be super successful and not have that background. Mm-hmm. I think that's what holds a lot of people back is thinking that they need to have like 100% in all of these different categories and yes. it's not true. You can play your own strengths. Yes. And <clears throat> and I think that's the key is to hire for your weaknesses as soon as possible. Even for me, my job at Exhale, while I really loved it, part of it was a requirement of teaching 15 classes a week. And I just got burnt out on teaching that much. And so by the time I opened my business, one thing it taught me was I don't I don't like to only work in one place all the time and only see one group of people all the time. I liked getting around. So I knew I always wanted to have more than one location. And I knew I did not want to be teaching full time because I had already kind of basically burnt myself out on that. And I knew that was just something I I was going to need a lot of support with. But I want to say one other thing about scaling that I think feels important to say. I have found scaling so friggin' challenging. And there is a reason that I haven't really opened a new location in a new community since the end of 2016. It's been a really long time since I've expanded into a new you know, market. And frankly, I knew I did not have enough support to manage how big the staff was getting. There was just too many people to be responsible for. And there was always something popping up and it was like physically painful for me to just like deal with stressful staffing issues. So without enough support for that, I did not want to have more. But also what I found was that there's this kind of narrative about scaling. I was listening to this podcast one time and he was saying like, well, the first thing you do is you hire for your weakness and you you keep doing that and you keep doing that until you've basically completely replaced yourself and you're not needed anywhere in the business and all you do is make decisions all day and that's being a CEO. And I did get myself to that place and I absolutely hated that job because I find making decisions exhausting. And I wasn't getting any gratification from 
actually having contact with our clients anymore or our team for that matter. And I was so removed and so just looking from that bird's eye view that there was no self-expression for me. And I started thinking about, this is so random, but the thought came to me that like Lady Gaga doesn't outsource her concerts. Like she doesn't like hire a team to replace Lady Gaga and like go to a Vegas residency. You know what I mean? So I think it's just knowing, like knowing that I'm the kind of person that wants to be on a stage. Of course, I don't want to be hiding out in my office all day behind the scenes making decisions only. That was so like life sucking. And especially during the pandemic when every day was another life and death decision. It was just, I was so not having fun. And so now I'm really challenging myself to, I'm challenging the scale narrative of the the dream is to replace yourself in the business that it doesn't even need you. And you can just, it's like Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, they're not replacing themselves. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I think it's okay if you want to work in your business, you don't have to just work on your business. And I think there's something to be said for scaling one location and having, if, if you love being in one location, if you love being with your clients, if you want to just see how big you could expand it or how many different ways you could serve the same clients or how profitable you could be with the smallest team, like that is very attractive to me. And I think that it's undervalued um, to just look at your bottom line rather than trying to have this impressive multi-million dollar top line. By the time you pay everybody that you need to pay and you're only keeping 10% of that, it's really not as sexy as it sounds. I think you have such a good healthy relationship with all of that. Like I love everything you just said because I feel like it swings both ways where we see a lot of people who teach 30 classes a week. They do everything. They clean the toilets. They, they do not want to give up any control. Yeah. And I feel like from the beginning, you were able to give up control and push down things, Do give up things you didn't like to do, which is hard for a lot of entrepreneurs. They want to do everything because it's your baby. And then at the same time, you step back and you realize there's actually a lot of things I love to do. I don't want to give up everything. So I feel like you have such a healthy relationship and you found a great balance, which has made you so successful. But that goes also back to like the bottom line. You said like, sure, you're making all this revenue, but if the bottom line, your margins are awful. And that goes back to like the, the footprint you take up, how much you spend on your build out. Like you're spending all this money. So sure, it looks great, but you're, you're actually making money. Mm-hmm. So I think you've done it in such a smart way and everything you've been doing. And that's why you're so successful. And talking a little bit more about your success, you have two kids, you have all these businesses, you're a speaker, you're clearly not that busy. So you decided mm-hmm. to go and write a book. <laughs> So let's talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. So, okay. Basically, as I mentioned earlier, my passion is women's empowerment. And I knew I wanted to write a book before I ever thought I would be in the fitness industry at all. I always loved books as a kid. I was always told I was a great writer. I was always reading a lot. So I never saw myself in fitness. I wasn't like an athletic kid or anything. I just kind of like stumbled into it. And like I said, it was really the the women's empowerment aspect that that kept me around when it comes to fitness and of course the empowerment that I felt through it as well. So the book just had to happen. And I actually had a business advisor who was so funny. And he said to me, basically like, you're not Jeff Bezos. Like you don't need to write a book yet. You're not at that point in your career. Keep your head down, grow your business. Don't get distracted like don't mess around just that you know this is how other businesses have gotten into trouble before 
just focus on growing and scaling. No one else is going to take care of your business the way that you will, like, you know, whatever. And I heard all of that advice and I was like, yeah, I don't care. I need to write a book. Like if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, like I just want to know that this story got shared. And so I just did it. And, you know, maybe he was right. I would have felt more impactful with the book if I waited until I had a bigger business or a bigger audience and it could reach more people, but it can still reach more people. And I think that if you have a book in you that you want to write, even if you only ever sell it to your clients and your friends and family, it's still contributing something important and it's going to make a difference for the person who picks up that book and it's exactly what they needed to hear. Yeah. Just like you came across a few like key pieces of your story, maybe your story will be a key piece for someone else. Yes. So what's the process actually like of writing a book? Because that seems really overwhelming and intimidating. Totally. So I love sharing this because I feel like a lot of people are not super transparent about this. And and a, a lot of us are walking around feeling like you have a book inside of you and you want to publish one someday. So I actually even remember, again, before I knew I was going to have studios when I was like a Lululemon ambassador and we would go have those BHAG goal setting nights and we would have these get togethers. And I remember like writing that I was going to have best selling books. Like that was just something I always knew I wanted to do. And so it just was something that kept showing up on my goals year after year. But I noticed I wasn't doing anything about it, like not even the smallest first step. And so I asked myself, why am I not doing this? And then I thought, oh, it's because I have no idea how it's done. I literally, it's kind of like when I was afraid to have a studio because I didn't know how. So I was like, okay, well, what do I do when I don't know how to do stuff? I hire someone that knows how to do it. <laughs> so I found a ghostwriter and I had her help me write the book and it was awesome. And so I hired this woman and she came out to Boston. She interviewed me for two days in my studio. We Within the first 20 five minutes, I'd say. We had the title. We had the outline of the chapters. We knew like the gist of what the book was going to be about and what the key things were that I was going to want to share. And then she just spent the next two days like asking me, well, what do you believe about goal setting? What's something really important you've learned about goal setting? What's an example of a story from your life when you had a chance to learn a lesson or have a breakthrough about this or that topic? And so then she would send me back a rough draft of a chapter. And then I would either get on the phone with her and give her my feedback, or I would just edit it myself and send it back. So it was a collaborative process. I ended up reading through editing and rewriting four times through. By the time the entire thing was, even even after the initial collaboration on each chapter, um, I read and edited four more times. And then I finally said like, okay, it's never going to be perfect. I think it just needs to be done. But it turned out to take, we thought it was only going to take a couple months. Honestly, it took a year be, to get that first draft done because I was really busy. So it wasn't always easy for me to get that revision done or get back to her, give her the feedback or ask for rewrites and stuff. So that took about a year. And then at the end, she actually introduced me to her publisher and she thought that it would be a really good fit for her publisher. So she ended up making the introduction and they sent me a book offer immediately. And actually, I didn't even get back to them for three months because I had no idea what I was looking at. I had this book contract and I was like, oh my God, I don't even know 
what any of this means or if this is a good deal or a bad deal or what or anything. So it took me three months just to figure that out. So then from there, I would say it took about another year to get through those four rounds of edits that I did. Um, so it, it took about two years and that was with a non-traditional small publisher. It takes even longer if you want to have a New York Times bestseller because you need to, the typical structure is you write a book proposal, which I would think you could totally hire a ghostwriter to help you do that too. And then um, you pitch that to agents and then your agent pitches the book proposal to publishers and then the publisher picks up, up your book and then you write it. So I don't know, maybe you add another year onto the process for that. I'm not sure because just getting an agent can take quite a while. Um, I'll probably try that at some point, but um, haven't haven't gone that road yet. How did it feel when it finally all came together and it went and it was published and now this whole thing that you've been working on and it's been a vision for so long. What did that feel like? So I'm curious if you've had this experience with when you get up and teach a class, you have this immediate feedback and you know it's amazing. And you can like see on people's faces how transformational that hour was. But then when you release a podcast episode, it's like well, it's out there now. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's listening to it. I wonder if they liked it. You know what I mean? So, and I've heard that from musicians too. Like you play a live gig and you like get all this feedback and then you put an album out and you're like, I wonder if anyone liked my album. <laughs> so I would say that publishing a book feels a little bit like that. And I do get um, random DMs from people who are like, oh my God, I randomly found your your audiobook and I just finished it. It was just what I needed. And and that is the coolest thing in the world. But there, even then, there's something different about people in person um, experiencing your offering. So I would say it's kind of just you feel kind of naked. It's kind of vulnerable because you just put it out there and you're just like, I hope someone liked it. <laughs> it's a huge deal. And we're going to link to it. It's called Own It All. What would you say if you had to give somebody like you saw somebody in an elevator passing by your quick elevator pitch on why they should read this book? Mm. Basically, I had a rock bottom moment when I fled from domestic violence and I was I had to run to a neighbor's house. They took me to the emergency room. I was there at the hospital and I called home and told my parents what had happened. And my dad in his very unfortunately limited view of what was possible for himself and his children in the world, his response to me was with such a heavy heart, like, what are you going to do? You can't leave. And in that moment, I realized like, oh, no one's coming to save me. Like, no one's going to fix this for me. I actually have to give myself permission to do what I know I need to do for myself. And um, a, a while after that, I saw a piece of street art by a guy named Eddie Kala and it, and it and it said, if you want to achieve greatness, stop asking for permission. So basically, if you not, want to not wait for your rock bottom moment to take ownership of your life and just start doing what you need to do to have the life you want, that's why you'd want to read my book. That's amazing. We need, we need to all go and read this book because <laughs> I think that this is such a great story. And you have so many just like tidbits of wisdom that I feel like we could talk to you for hours. And so... Oh, I have so many more questions, but I, we can't take you all day. I want to ask you yeah. about your marketing. <laughs> Can you go next? Yeah, we'll, we'll switch next time. So we have a lot of people that listen to this and a lot of females. 
and they have an idea or they have a side hustle, but they just don't even know where to start or they don't even think it's possible. What advice would you give to somebody who's listening to this, have the next idea, like the next bar and soul, or even can be smaller, what would you say to them to do now? I say take the biggest risk you can stomach for today. So maybe you're not ready to quit your job, but maybe you're ready to start an Instagram account for your side hustle. You know, maybe you're not ready to break up with your partner and a relationship that isn't serving you, but you are ready to invest in yourself in getting therapy or doing personal development programs or taking your yoga teacher training or something that's going to help you grow and move one inch closer to what it is that you want to create. So what are, what's coming next for you? Do you think you're going to continue to write? What's next for Bar and Soul? What can we expect? Okay. I haven't told anyone this yet. And I just feel compelled to share it. But my word for the year is sabbatical. And it's like medicine that I needed so bad after the pandemic. And it was actually my amazing regional director, Janice, who said to me, because I keep trying to get more out of like the drudgery parts of the business and be more creative. And I know when I'm in my creativity, I am contributing so much more to the team and to the clients. And I just kept falling into this habit of drudgery, especially from the pandemic and the survival mode of like hanging on and white knuckling every single day. And she said to me, you know, you don't have to find something to do all the time. Like you don't have to fill your time looking for stuff to do for the business. Like we're all here. We've got this. Like you could kind of just take a sabbatical. And it just was like medicine to hear that word because what I love about it is it's not an ending. It's just like a break. It's like permission to pause. But what I like about a sabbatical is you can you can work on sabbatical. You can do research. You can like decide you're going to deep dive into a project or you can like go to Italy for 3 months and there's just so much freedom and so I am really taking this year to shake off every friggin crusty ass scale of burnout from the pandemic. And I am just like Every day I wake up and I'm totally still working, but it's like in my heart and in my mind, I know that I'm working from that sabbatical energy where it's like, I'm not working on anything I don't want to. I'm going to kind of like fuck around and find out and just like see what happens this year. I have a location I am thinking of expanding. Um, I have just, oh my God, the sexiest new branding that we're about to roll out. We just redid our logos and our colors and our fonts. So a new website and uh, we're working with an interior designer to just make things even more fun and playful and really Studio 54 inside, inside the studios, bringing more soulfulness. So really just nothing that you would necessarily put on a strategic plan and you know, basically I don't want to, um, I don't want to ruin the creativity with too much formal planning. <laughs> I just want to feel free this year and see what comes out of that. I love that. I cannot wait to see just with all this energy going into creativity and playing your strengths, honestly. So we like to end every interview with our fast five questions. So what is one non-negotiable thing that you do every single day? Hmm. I pull one tarot card every day and I ask my higher self, what is the wisdom that I need? Or for this year, for my sabbatical year, I'm asking, what does joy want me to know today? And what is one bucket list place you'd like to travel to? Probably Bali. What is the best or worst piece of business advice you've ever received? 
scale and make yourself irrelevant in your business. What are three traits that you think every entrepreneur should have? Humility, a sense of worthiness, like why not me? And a hunger to never stop growing and pushing your your personal edges. And if you could go back to the very beginning when you weren't sure if you were going to open your own location, didn't know if you wanted to buy this business, you were facing all these challenges, what's one thing that you would say to yourself? Don't take anything personally. (laughs) Awesome. Well, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you, where they can buy your book, how they can sign up for Bar and Soul, all the things. Okay. Um, You can find me on social and on the webs at Andrea Isabel Lucas. And you can find Bar and Soul at Bar Soul. We mostly hang out on Instagram. Our website is also barsoul.com. We have live stream classes, we have on demand, and of course, we have the four locations as well as the teacher training programs. That's barsoulacademy.com. And what was the other part of that? We're thinking about your book. Oh, yeah. The book is on Amazon. So a lot of people want to support buying the book directly through the studio, but it's actually awesome if you just buy it on Amazon. It helps my ranking there. So the book is called Own It All. My name is Andrea Isabel Lucas. Great. And you guys know where to find us. Instagram, we're at Business Muscle Podcast, businessmusclepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Ariel.dpt on Instagram. And Elise is Elise Kyra. We will see you next week. You just finished another episode of the Business Muscle Podcast. If you found value in this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Your reviews mean the world to us and help us reach other listeners who can make a big impact in the business world. Don't forget to join our Business Muscle Podcast Facebook group where you can ask questions and chat with other like-minded entrepreneurs. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll bring you more expert advice and practical strategies to help you thrive. Thank you for being a part of the Business Muscle community and we'll catch you in the next episode.